Sebastio wrote his thesis on Shrem's one. He's had many roles, yet his career has just begun. Sebastio competes in field hockey competitions. You'll want to hear all about his ambitions. So in today's podcast, we have Sebastio Barouche Valle, and he is the EU Policy Fellow for the Future Privacy Forum. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Sebastian. Thanks a lot, Noah. Very good. Okay, so uh, we'll start with growing up and uh, your childhood. So um, you grew up in Portugal. So talk, uh, you know, a little bit about that experience growing up uh, in Portugal and um, sort of some of your first jobs uh, as a as a kid or as a teenager. Yeah. So sure. Um, so I'm born and raised in the city of Porto, Portugal. So that's where port wine comes from. You've heard of port, right? Um, and I mean, I guess it was a very standard uh, childhood. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to attend a, a good school and I made some very good friends uh, there that they're still my core group of friends today. Uh, which is awesome. Uh, I've, I've known a lot of people that haven't been able to hold on to uh, friends, like uh, whole old friends for that long. So I've, I feel very fortunate about that too. I was always more inclined to uh, languages and humanities in, in general. So less of a, you know, maths or sciences person. Uh, I've always enjoyed writing a lot and speaking in public. Uh, and uh, this was also because I had a very uh, engaging Portuguese teacher who unfortunately already uh, passed away, who had a big influence on me and uh, basically said, said to me at one point that I would be able to succeed even if I chose the hardest or narrower path, which was uh, studying humanities uh, later, later on in my uh, academic life. And uh, eventually, because I, always, I was always interested in history, political sciences and studies, I was tempted to choose that as a bachelor, so in university, but eventually upon much, you know, study and thought and thinking about what would be would be the the safest option for my future then i eventually decided to attend law school and this was also uh, in my hometown of porto all of this until i was 21 and finally completed my bachelor's uh, I, w I stayed in porto most of my life except for uh, a short period in south america for exchange but we can talk about that as well. Wow, yeah, let's uh, let's get to that. So where, where did you stay in South America? So this, uh, you know, when I reached the final year of my bachelor, I, I always had good grades in general. And so normally in Europe, we do something called the, the Erasmus program, right? So students normally go to uh, other uh, European Union countries for uh, six months to study in a different university, uh, normally to do sort of optional courses from their uh, degree. 
so normally not so difficult, let's say, uh, courses in, for which they uh, get sort of an equivalence in their uh, final transcripts in, the, in their own universities. But back then, uh, two friends and I, we were thinking about where we, were, where we would like to go on Erasmus and we thought, wouldn't it be just so different and so amazing to just have this huge cultural shock and you know, instead of doing an Erasmus program, do an exchange program in South America. And we started looking into what our university offered uh, in that respect. And they have this partnership with a Peruvian university in Lima. Uh, and I mean, we thought that uh, it would be the most amazing thing we could we could do. And it, it was super fun. Uh, the courses uh, were also amusing, we, st we studied and, and took our exams in Spanish. Back then we were not so good, but we very uh, quickly improved our level. Uh, and uh, mostly uh, we met people from very different parts of the world, also engaged with you know, locals and the local community a lot. Uh, and it was super enriching, I must say. Was, this was back in 2014. So delve into that a little bit more. What kind of you know things did you do uh, in Peru, and um, you know what, what was that experience like? Uh, so we lived very close to the university. It was like a ten-minute walk, and we only have uh, classes in the evening. So this allowed us also to have a lot of fun uh, in the night and calmly recover for the next day <laughs> of, of university. Uh, but also uh, the, uh, we have all free weekends. So we, we managed to travel a lot within the country. We uh, hiked to Machu Picchu. It was a five day hike in, in the Sakantai uh, trail. So we, we covered mountains and jungle all in, a, all in five days, like huge differences in climate and height. Uh, it was amazing. Then we also had the chance to go to beaches. It's a very diverse country uh, in terms of landscape. Uh, and unfortunately, I was not able to backpack around South America as one of my friends did after uh, we finished uh, the, the classes period. But I hope that I still have the opportunity to do that later on in my life. I certainly want to. Very good. So going back a little bit, um, so growing up, your dad worked at the, the European institution. So talk yeah. you know, about that and kind of like what influence he had uh, on you. Yeah. So, I mean, this is relevant eventually because of the choice I made after my bachelor, but we can get to that. So in the 90s, my dad uh, was appointed, I don't know if it was by a uh, employer's representative association, I believe, to one advisory body of the European Union called the European Social and Economic Committee. So what it does is uh, they offer opinions to the European Commission and the other legislators which are the European Parliament and the, European, the Council of the European Union on uh, certain legislative proposals 
that have been tabled by the European Commission in terms of their impact on, you know, social welfare, the, the, the impact on the GDP of the countries, also on the relationship between uh, employers and employees. That's uh, also a, a big focus. And uh, my dad, you know, each month he would go there for meetings, two or three days a, a month. He also bring chocolates every time. Chocolate in Belgium is great. Um, and I was also, I was always very curious about what he did there and how important it was uh, and what the European Union was all about in the end. So what influence did it have on, you know, each member state's nationals' lives? Uh, and this interest of mine uh, endures throughout my life and also in university where I had the chance to study European Union law as one of the of, of my mandatory courses. And eventually that also, that interest also pushed me to apply to a European Union master's uh, program in Belgium, more specifically in Bruges. And I was lucky enough to be accepted and complete the master's. This was 2015 and 16. Yeah. So that was it. going to uh, your college years, just for the American listeners that have like undergraduate and then law school separately. How does that uh, work in Europe? So okay, so when you get to ninth grade, which is like you, when you turn 15, this is in Portugal, I'm talking about only the Portuguese education system. You have to choose uh, between scientific areas, let's say. You can choose either economics, arts, uh, sciences, uh, humanities or sports. I hope I'm not forgetting any any area. At least in my time, it was like that. Uh, and then that sort of you know narrows the the bachelors that you can, that you can actually choose when you finish high school, right? So if you uh, choose uh, an economics an economics uh, route, uh, you will probably end up choosing either management, marketing, or even economics, of course. If you choose sciences, it's either biology, medicine, engineering, etc. If you go to humanities, then you have, you know, international relations, history, languages, or law, which was what I took. Uh, this is how the system works. Then depending on the grades you have, internally in your school and then in your national exams, the exams that are relevant to uh, the degree that you want to get in to, uh, then you get accepted to public universities. If you don't get uh, accepted or you believe some other private universities are better for what you want to do in your life, then you go to private universities. Fascinating. Okay, so with that background, so then you went to uh, Bruges and mm. so explain you know what uh, you did there and then the impactful Shrums one ruling uh, that that sort of shaped your shaped your career yeah so this was obviously after my bachelor in law this was four years long uh, it took me uh, from 2011 2015 and after that I went to Bruges uh, I really I was I didn't know what to expect really and how 
uh, impactful and really life-changing the experience in Bruges would be uh, because I was one of the youngest persons that got accepted that year. So if you, just to give you a clue, the, most of the of my colleagues from the law masters had different masters that but I can cover that later. It was around 25, 26, and I was 22 when I went there. So uh, at first I felt a little intimidated, right? All these people, most of them already have a master's degree and I'm just taking my first master's degree now. They already know how to write uh, sort of academic articles. They, most of them have written their own thesis before uh, with very impressive backgrounds. Some of them with uh, internships in EU institutions or at the UN or other international organizations. And for me, I was just, you know, a guy stepping out of law school and just entering this world of uh, brilliant people. And uh, at first it was a little intimidating, but then when I realized that I could, you know, keep up with, uh, you know, the questions that they were, they were asking professors and what, uh, you know, the materials that professors said with us, then I felt more at ease. And, and there was another dimension to it, of course, that 50% uh, of our classes were in English and other 50% were in French. And, you know, half a year before I went to Bruges, my French was awful. Uh, I had two or three years of French in school when I was very young, but then I had forgotten all about it. So I had to study it all over again, take uh, certification at the Alliance Francaise Institute. And uh, honestly, when I went to Bruges, my French was still very bad. <laughs> so whenever I had classes uh, in French, it took double the effort to, you know, understand everything that was going on and to go through all the reading materials and also to socialize with all the French speaking community. There was a lot of Belgian and French people, for instance, uh, that initially I, I was embarrassed to speak French to them. So I, I was only speaking English all the time outside of, of, of the classes, of course. But eventually at the end of the year, I was more at ease and uh, I started speaking French to, you know, all the French speaking people. And nowadays I, my French is way more decent, but back then it was uh, another uh, issue. Um, and yeah, so we the first semester all consisted of mandatory courses, like the basis of EU law, like what each institution did according to the EU treaties, uh, the rules uh, regarding where you can uh, seek uh, courts, uh, the EU court to review uh, each institution's decisions, when national courts can ask questions to the EU court, regarding the interpretation and validity of EU law, et cetera. So this is all the basic knowledge of EU law. And then on, in the second semester, you are able to choose the seminars of your liking. And one of them related to data protection law, which back then was you know, hyping a lot because you, we were at the late stages of uh, the negotiations between the EU institutions of what is now the final text of the General Data Protection Regulation, famous GDPR, right? So everyone was very interested in it. And I was particularly interested because I wanted to write my master's thesis 
on data protection law. So this was really a seminar that I wanted to take. Uh, and regarding the Schrems one ruling that you mentioned, so uh, this ruling, this is October 2015, I believe, uh, shook the world of data protection uh, all around because what the highest EU court decided back then was to annul this European Commission decision that allowed uh, free transfers of personal data of EU citizens to US companies that self-subscribe to these uh, safe harbor principles, right? But it annulled uh, the decision based on the fact that once the data was transferred to these companies, uh, US legislation, such as the FISA 702 or the executive order 12333, allowed US uh, intelligence agencies to freely access data um, uh, that was hosted in electronic communication service providers with no adequate you know, redress for EU citizens or no actual limitation to what was what the court felt was strictly necessary to attain the national security purposes for that access. And because it was not only had it had a, a huge legal impact, it was also in terms of diplomacy, very impactful. So I, I thought it was very interesting because of what I thought would you know, be uh, also a very impactful decision on the relations between the EU, the EU and the US in years to come in, in terms of digital policy. And eventually, because uh, as shown from last year's Schrems 2 decision, uh, it really was. So uh, it had very long-term effects and we, we are still yet to see a definite solution to, to you know, the very critical, harsh stance that the EU court took since then. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to, to see what how it plays out. So before we move on to the next question, just to recap all the languages uh, you speak. So Portuguese, English, Spanish, French, right? Yes, I would wow. say so. Impressive. Although, <laughs> although I mean, my English and my Portuguese are way better than the other two. But yeah, that's very true. good. Um, okay, so so then you ended up going back to, to Portugal and uh, worked at a law firm. So explain you know, why, why you ended up going there and what you did uh, at mm -hmm. that law firm. So all of my colleagues from Bruges were having interviews and applying for jobs in Brussels. That was the natural course of things. So this master's in particular at the College of Europe is sort of a preparation uh, for a, a career as a what... Uh, some would call a Eurocrat life. So uh, people that would go to the European institutions to work or work around, you know, uh, work around in consultancies in EU uh, public affairs or go to law firms in Brussels also to practice uh, competition law, uh, all of that stuff. But back then when I was having interviews for these sort of roles, uh, one of the questions that I was always asked is, are you a qualified lawyer yet? back home and I'm like, no, not at all because <laughs> I just graduated law school before coming here. So I had no time to do that. And everyone advised me to, to do it um, before I, you know, uh, I eventually uh, jumped again to, 
to Belgium. And uh, that's what I decided to do. So I started looking into my options. And uh, there were a couple of law firms in Portugal that had a very developed uh, ICT practice area. So relating to uh, anything that has to do with software licensing agreements, uh, intellectual property, but also, and this was what I wanted to work with the most uh, uh, data protection and privacy law and cybersecurity, et cetera. And I, I was fortunate to, to be uh, accepted in one of those in Lisbon in 2016. And in parallel, I was completing my bar association duties. So there is a two-year period in which you have to attend court hearings, produce a bunch of reports, and then you also have to uh, do a written and an oral exam to, to pass the, the bar uh, the bar's requirements to then become a lawyer, which happened in 2018. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, 2018. Very good. So at the law firm then, what, you know, what kind of work uh, were you able to do? So it was the hot times of you know, GDPR compliance. So we have a, a large number of uh, corporate groups in Portugal from healthcare, banking, insurance sectors uh, that were grappling with how they would need to change their contracts, processes, procedures to adjust to what seemed like this uh, Herculean tax, uh, task of complying with, uh, with the regulation. So we spent days and nights uh, advising them, writing legal opinions, uh, adjusting their contract and policy templates, conducting data protection impact assessments, uh, doing completing very boring records of processing activities. I remember this very, uh, uh, very in a very detailed manner. The, the days uh, that I spent uh, filling these very procedural bureaucratic documents in which you describe the activities for which companies process personal data of their employees, their customers, etc. So this was all uh, involved and there were uh, more niche uh, types of projects in which you would analyze the privacy compliance aspects of new technologies around uh, certain AI and facial recognition solutions, which were the ones that I enjoyed the most probably because uh, they put me out of my comfort zone. And for through them, I got to understand technology a little, little better. So these were the ones that I liked to work with the most. That's great. Okay, so moving on from the law firm, then you uh, ended up at Johnson & Johnson. So. Talk about you know how you ended up uh, there and and what kind of work you did as the as the privacy specialist. Just before that, I, I there was in between my law firm duties. I also came back to Belgium for five months for a traineeship at the European Commission, uh, which uh, back then it was sort of a dream come true because it was something that I I've wanted to do since I was in uh, in Bruges. And I got to work directly with uh, with the EU commissioner uh, responsible for the implementation of the GDPR uh, in Europe, who was the Czech commissioner, Vera Jourova. So just, just to explain for, of course, 
non-EU audiences. Uh, currently, this, has, this doesn't have to be like that according to EU treaties, but currently each member state of the European Union has the right to appoint one commissioner for the European Commission, which is like the executive body of the European Union. They have the right to propose laws and to, uh, you know, uh, oversee the, the correct application and uh, of the treaties of the European Union. And uh, each commissioner has one portfolio for which they are responsible. There was one commissioner for, you know, economic affairs, another for migration, uh, another for competition, for instance, competition law. And in this case, the, the commissioner for whom I ended up working at the cabinet uh, was responsible for consumer protection, gender equality and uh, data protection, which back then was a very cool portfolio to work with uh, and eventually it was uh, the coolest part was that I had a chance to work on the first annual review of the Privacy Shield. And the Privacy Shield, you may know, is the decision of the European Commission that replaced the Safe Harbor decision that was annulled by the court that we were talking about earlier. Uh, and privacy, the Privacy Shield was eventually annulled as well last year by the Court of Justice. So we had the chance to work on the first annual review. So the commission was obliged to see if it was effective for the protection of EU citizens data uh, on a yearly basis. And back then I worked with several stakeholders to produce a report on the numbers of complaints referred and you know whether the information available to the commission allowed to reach the conclusion that it still afforded adequate protection and uh, Eventually, the, the knowledge I had gathered during my master's thesis uh, was useful as well in, in those discussions. So I, I felt uh, a, a very useful part uh, of the team back then, uh, which was a great feeling. But you were talking about Johnson & Johnson. And of course, this was the step I took after uh, the law firm. This was last year. And uh, I honestly wanted to make a move to a more internal, so in-house uh, compliance role. Uh, also because, you know, to be honest, a law firm life is very exhausting. So you work very long hours. Uh, you, basically, you don't have your own schedule. It's your client's schedule that matters, of course. And it, eventually it can take a, a toll on you. And, uh, you know, uh, it was very tiring uh, and sometimes not so fulfilling uh, routine. And uh, I really wanted to make a change. Uh, and it, it seemed uh, that Johnson Johnson as an healthcare global group that had a reputation to care for its uh, workforce and not only a reputation, actually now I can attest to that, uh, was because they were looking for a privacy specialist in Portugal was the best option and uh, and I was right in thinking that because they welcomed me very well as part of their privacy team which is global but also they have uh, Europe focused members and I stayed there for a year if so until May this year 
great, great. So what kind of privacy work uh, did you do there? So it was privacy centered, of course. So I, I only took care of privacy related matters. Whereas when I was at the law firm, I could, you know, eventually study other matters of law, such as, you know, uh, private international law, copyright, uh, telecoms or consumer protection law. The, in this case, it was really just privacy focused. So all parts of the Johnson & Johnson business in Portugal would rely on my expertise in terms of not only the GDPR, but also the Portuguese data protection law and the Portuguese data protection authorities' decisions and guidelines, etc., as to how they should uh, launch their proje projects or adjust them in regards to complying with these requirements. So uh, this enabled me to have a very holistic view of the company's activities in Portugal because I was in contact with virtually every department at, at the company. Because if you think about it, even if it's for internal purposes, almost all departments at the company have uh, you know, contact, they process uh, personal data for their purposes, right? Uh, so, uh, of course, with the support of a, a much wider team in other countries, uh, also to uh, assess processes and projects that were global in nature or European in nature, uh, I was responsible for verifying that, uh, you know, we were not collecting too much data for the, the, the process, uh, that uh, all the contracts with our vendors or our processors were were in place. That I that all uh, employees of the company uh, were duly trained with regards to compliance with GDPR requirements. So, uh, and I also reported directly to to the board of of the company in Portugal. So, uh, quarterly, uh, I would uh, present the results of you know, the assessments I had conducted, any data breaches that we we could have uh, dealt with uh, and so on and so forth. So this was basically what I did when I was back there. Great, great. So then after that, um, you moved to your current, uh, your current role at the Future of Privacy Forum doing more policy-centered uh, work. So talk about, mm -hmm. you know, that, that transition and then what you've been able to, to do at FBF. Honestly, FPF was one of the first organizations that I understood were very influential in the world of privacy when I started working at the law firm because I would check their uh, reports and you know their publicly available information very often because also from a technical standpoint, they offered very deep insights on how certain technologies work and their impact on data protection rights. And so, uh, you know, and they have uh, very renowned people working in different domains, uh, which I followed on, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, etc. So uh, they were not new to me at all. And since I had been wanting to make a move from a compliance-centered role to a more policy-making and academic-ish, let's say, um, work. Uh, I, I thought, you know, not having a PhD or not wanting to 
uh, enroll in one for the foreseeable future, uh, but still in knowing that I had some expertise on these matters, uh, the role that they were offering as an EU policy fellow, uh, I mean, I looked at the requirements and I felt that I've, I, I fit like a glove, right? <laughs> so uh, I applied um, late last year, the process took um, took a while, uh, but um, you know the interviews were were very cool with Rob and Gabriella, which are the the members who I work with more directly uh, nowadays. And uh, it was very funny. They uh, at the last interview, I believe, they challenged me to write uh, a paper from one day to another in what I believe were the believed were the greatest privacy challenges of one of the very recent uh, legal proposals tabled by the European Commission. So this was in late last year. So that we had the Data Governance Act, the Digital Services Act, Digital Markets Act, et cetera. So I had to choose one of them and sort of write a two-pager on what I felt were the most challenging aspects from a privacy compliance and, you know, uh, compatibility with the GDPR perspective. Uh, and I, they seem to have liked it because uh, then uh, I got offered the role and I was honestly over over the moon uh, to have been chosen. And uh, and also I've been enjoying a lot the, the work that I've been doing since May, since I joined. And, you know, next week, Late next week, I'll be physically moving to Brussels to work with Rob at the office, because since I joined, I've been working remotely from Lisbon still. So uh, it seems like it is finally materializing the change, you see. Wow. So talk about that. You know, like FPF is based out of D.C. in America. So, you know, talk about their, their European arm and kind of the work that you've been able to, to do there. Yeah. So as you mentioned, Noah, you, you know, because you've worked with us uh, very recently this summer, uh, FEF is mostly DC based. So that's where I believe the organization grew organically. Uh, but then uh, also because, you know, privacy uh, regulations are being approved all around the world nowadays. And uh, also the influence that these other regulations may have uh, for future laws uh, in the US and elsewhere, uh, the organization was feeling the need to, to grow in other jurisdictions and continents, et cetera. And adding to the, you know, the work that Rob was already uh, doing uh, in Europe, so keeping up with privacy developments, so court decisions, DPA decisions, new laws and requirements that were being approved in Europe, they felt that it was time to enlarge the, the team also because it's a very busy time in Brussels in terms of uh, the, the proposals that are being currently discussed to rein in uh, digital platforms uh, in the data economy. Uh, and because there, it's going to be such an intense uh, period, um, if uh, they they must have felt that it made sense to have a, an additional resource and hence I joined the team. In terms of what I've been doing, so 
I cannot complain about lack of exposure because <laughs> immediately, uh, immediately when I joined, I had the chance to engage with a lot of our stakeholders. So, you know, FEF has a number of corporate and uh, non-profit uh, supporters. And uh, I got the chance to engage with them and share uh, some news about, you know, new enforcement actions, uh, new laws that are being proposed in Europe, etc. Uh, and I also uh, had the chance also to uh, write up uh, some events that FPF, you know, summaries of uh, events that FPF has hosted in the last couple of months. And most notably, I produced a report on the strategies that um, European data protection authorities have published in terms of what their guidance and enforcement priorities will be for the coming years. And this was also very interesting, I believe very well received by the privacy community in Europe, but also elsewhere. So sparked a lot of curiosity in the privacy community. That's great. So just, uh, you know, looking forwards, you've already worked at law firm at, uh, you know, major corporation, uh, the European rulemakers, you know, uh, now at FPF, more of a policy centered. So. Is that really the only thing you haven't have yet to do is uh, be a regulator, like working uh, with the with the DPA? So, talk maybe about some of your future dreams and uh, you know where you see your your career going. Yeah, I mean, and uh, the, the DPAs is one side. There, there are also other NGOs uh, of a more, let's say, activist nature uh, doing um, what I believe is great work uh, around. Uh, but also, there's also the rulemaking side itself. Uh, so, uh, but of course, that would probably entail that I would get involved in politics. And uh, honestly, I'm very comfortable uh, in the seat of, you know, being a technical expert and not, uh, you know, having to uh, join the uh, sometimes murky terrains of, of politics. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Working at the DPA would be very, very cool, actually. What I tend to say to people is that I would like to see data protection and privacy from all angles possible. So as you mentioned, I've been at the law firm. I've been uh, in-house at the company. I have uh, did, did a traineeship at the European Commission. Now I'm at this more research center organization, which is uh, FPF. But, and who knows, I mean, uh, working at the DPA, at the Portuguese Data Protection Authority, for instance, in the future, uh, I think, I believe it would be a great experience. Uh, they are very small. Uh, they very publicly complain of the lack of resources they have attributed by the Portuguese government to, you know, pursue their uh, powers and competences and responsibilities they have like 25 people in total working there, uh, which compared with other DPAs with a similar population, of course, you have to compare it like that, is very slim. Uh, and uh, who knows if they will be recruiting uh, in the next five, 10 years. <clears throat> There's a, an issue with recruiting from outside uh, public service. Uh, and uh, if they eventually manage to 
surpass that obstacle maybe they will look into you know external experts to uh, be on their team uh, but yeah for, for sure it would be it would be great uh, of course there's also uh, European watchdogs uh, so the European data protection supervisor the European data protection board uh, and they have bigger teams and be working in a multinational and multicultural environment is something that I've I'm very used to and I think I thrive more in such contexts and to work in one of those, it would be also an amazing experience. So let's see what the future holds. Um, still, I still, I'm still quite young, I think. So uh, there's, I, I think I'm, I will go through plenty of change and in terms of direction of my career. And let's see, Noah, let's see. Very good. So uh, be you know remiss didn't ask about some non-privacy related things. So you're on the Portuguese national field hockey team for 15 years, and uh, you also are you know on Spotify. You uh, play play the guitar, the bass. So talk you know a little bit about the uh, the outside of privacy world and how you got into field hockey and uh, that that kind of thing. Yeah. So I mean, I've played field hockey for 15 years now but I haven't played that in the national team for 15 years just to you know be more precise uh, but yeah so it is a very very small sport in Portugal it has you know a, a lot of players elsewhere in Europe uh, in the Netherlands and in Belgium also in Germany but in Portugal it is a very very small sport uh, and I joined because, you know, the club in which my family practiced sports, uh, my father's family practiced sports all, all its life. And it also, they also took some managing roles there, uh, had a field hockey section. And what I once tried the sport uh, in these, you know, summer camps that they had uh each year and i enjoyed it and uh, the guy who was giving training he said ah you you're not too bad you should come and you know try out with us i was a little old already to i believe uh be a very skillful player i still think i'm not uh, i'm just very committed <laughs> i'm not very skillful but yeah i joined when i was 13 or 14 and I've been playing ever since. I was I got very addicted to the sport, and uh, I never, you know, stopped really uh, in these fifteen years, despite all the changes that I've been through. So, even when I went to Peru, uh, I've played in a club in Lima, uh, in which they even they didn't even have a, a proper hockey pitch. We, we play like in a stone floor outside and on natural grass, which is not know what normally uh, clubs would have uh, then I also played in Belgium while I was studying and while I was at the European Commission and I also want to keep playing now when I uh, move to Brussels of course I'm very excited about the prospect because Belgium has have just um, won the Olympics at the men's competition so the numbers in Belgium are increasing every year the quality of the game there is amazing so for me to have the chance to 
you know, in parallel, work at FPF in Brussels, you know, in the EU bubble, and also play hockey there is like uh, ideal. I, I can't even describe it. It's, it's fantastic. And in terms of the national team, yeah, we, this summer I had a chance also to play a competition with the Portuguese national team uh, in Portugal, actually. It took place in the north of the country in Lozada. Unfortunately, we didn't uh, manage to reach one of the positions that the, would allow would have allowed us to uh, go up a division. Uh, but we still, you know, played well and we still have a young team and we hope to, you know, step up our game for in two years for next European Championship to go up the, the divisions. And yeah, I'm hopeful about that as well. And in terms of music, of course, uh, you mentioned it too. Um, I've started playing the bass almost, you know, the same year that I started playing hockey. So, um, you know, I started playing the bass mostly because I had a very good friend that played the electric guitar and I wanted to play with him. So nothing serious at all. Uh, but it eventually developed a, a very deep taste for, you know, R&B and jazz. And I studied for three or four years. Then I found a, a very nice group of people in Porto, my hometown. Uh, we're all still friends. And we formed this uh, group called Ohani. Uh, and we even managed to record our own uh, short play for like as four songs. It is on Spotify, as you mentioned. Uh, we even you know, made the rudimentary physical edition of of the record. Like we only had the hundred copies and we sold mostly to our friends, but we had so much fun playing together and giving concerts uh, all around town. Uh, yeah, it was super fun. But back then, but uh, since then, I haven't had a very serious uh, project. Uh, I played with friends also in the masters. We have a group. Uh, that played people from different nationalities, but it was mostly covers, so not you know original stuff. Uh, but I still play uh, mostly for my own you know entertainment. But yeah, it's something that I still carry with me and a huge taste for music, collecting records, and listening to music all day while I work. So it's a big part of my life too. Wow, very good, very good. So my last question for you is, uh, you know. The listener that's thinking about how they can become the next uh, Sebastião Barros Valle, uh, you know, what, what would you have to say to them? What kind of experiences have you done, especially being so young and you've already seen so many different, uh, you know, aspects of the privacy world and just the world at large? Um, you know, what types of uh, steps have you taken or advice do you have for uh, listeners? So it's kind of difficult. I mean, of course, I can give recommendations for someone to, you know, thrive in the world of privacy, but my recommendation would be to just keep your eye open real, uh, regarding, you know, the, the, the societal impact that technology is having nowadays and where regulation is heading. So how are... Uh, lawmakers looking at tackling uh, societal impacts of artificial 
artificial intelligence, uh, quantum technologies, uh, blockchain, etc. Uh, the societal impacts that you know using social media and other platforms is having on uh, on on our society and uh, to understand how you can study the problems and come up with possible solutions uh, and be part of the uh, of the discussion from an early moment so I, because the gdpr was such a new thing in, in, in even if it was uh, it, to a large extent based on the the previous existing regime the data protection directive uh, when i joined the law firm i was able to have very insightful discussions with the partners from my department, for instance, because we were all learning about these new concepts at the same time. So we, the trainee could debate with the partner uh, at the sort of, uh, you know, sort of eye to eye, because we were all learning at the same time. So if you uh, decide to work in an area of law, which is currently developing and approving its main instruments or going through a major overhaul, then you will be able to, I believe, uh, grow quicker and gain ground to participate in, you know, relevant debates and, you know, build a reputation and a name for yourself. Uh, and this will be the, the advice I would give, you know, always pay attention to the news, what's, what's new, what are uh, courts saying, what are authorities saying, what, you know, even uh, philosophers, ethicists are saying about the impacts of technology in all our lives, because ultimately the law will respond. And when the law responds, they, they will need interpreters and people who know what it means, or at least have a very informed guess and uh, at that moment, if you have taken this long road to understand these concepts, you'll have a chance to, to thrive in, in, in the domain you choose. So th this would be my advice. Very good. So uh, with that, thank you so much for joining the podcast, Sebastio. Thank you for your invitation. No, I, I honestly, I listened to a couple of, uh, of your conversations uh before uh today and i i wasn't sure how i was gonna manage but i think i did so we, we've been talking for like 15 minutes maybe uh, so it's quite long yeah you did it you did a great job every minute was uh, was perfect <laughs> thank you thank you